0: Hello and welcome. I'm Eric Erickson. You're listening to WSB and this is our Christmas program. When I was a kid, I had a, a tape recorder and yes, yes, a tape recorder back in the eighties and had a, a tape and it had tons of classics on it. Uh, Perry Colmo, Bing Crosby, uh, Kate Smith, Judy Garland and Arthur Fiedler's Carol of the Bells, that particular version. And my child to this day loves that song. And when my oldest was little, And that song came on, she would freeze and then just start shaking uncontrollably, just swaying to the beats of of the song. It was the funniest, sweetest little thing. Uh, I love that song, and and it always puts me in the Christmas mood. I hope it does for you as well. For the next two hours, we're going to walk through the actual Christmas story, the history of Christmas, why it's the 25th, uh, why Christians believe these things are true, um, the covenantal basis for Christmas and the coming of Christ and through the resurrection, and I want to begin, as I do every single year when I do this, with this, from Luke, chapter 2, verse 1. In those days a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be registered. This was the first registration when Quirinius was governor of Syria. And all went to be registered, each to his own town, And Joseph also went up from Galilee from the town of Nazareth to Judea to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was of the house and lineage of David to be registered with Mary, his betrothed, who was with child. And while they were there, the time came for her to give birth. And she gave birth to her firstborn son and wrapped him in swaddling clothes and laid him in a manger because there was no room for them in the inn and in the same region There were shepherds out of the field, keeping watch over the flock by night. And an angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were filled with great fear. And the angel said to them, Fear not, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. For unto us is born this day in the city of David a Savior, who is Christ the Lord. And this will be a sign for you. You will find a baby They made known the saying that had been told them concerning this child, and all who heard it wondered at what the shepherds told them. But Mary treasured up all these things, pondering them in her heart. And the shepherds returned, glorifying and praising God for all they had heard and seen, as it had been told them. And at the end of eight days, when he was circumcised, he was called Jesus, the name given by the angel before he was conceived in the womb. The reading of Luke chapter 2. But you know, the story doesn't begin there. It begins in the Garden of Eden. It begins with the first sin. In Genesis chapter 3, Eve is confronted by the serpent, who asks her, as so many people are prone to say, did God actually say you shall not eat of the tree in the garden. And the woman said to the serpent, We may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden, but God said, You shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it, lest you die. He did not actually say that. Now, here's an interesting bit for you if you haven't paid attention to the story Eve had not been created by God when God gave the commandment not to eat of the tree the fruit of the knowledge of good and evil. It was only Adam who was present, which is why the sin counted against Adam because he should have told Eve better. And yet, not only did Adam clearly not process the message clearly, it seems, but he took of the apple when the God of the universe who created him out of the dust of the earth had told him not to. But even there in the garden, there was redemption. You see, he told the serpent in Genesis 3.15, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. Now, there is a debate among scholars as to that language, but the consensus is that when Genesis 3.15 says, he shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel, that it is very specifically meant to be uh, a singular subject there, a singular subject. That is, one son, a descendant of Eve, will end the serpent. And, you know, they thought very quickly when they were exiled from the garden that maybe it was Cain. Cain's name sounds very much like the Hebrew word forgotten, and it clearly wasn't Cain. And then they thought maybe Seth, when they had Seth. Seth means in Hebrew, he appointed, but it wasn't Seth. And when you fast forward, they kept waiting and waiting and waiting and waiting for a savior of some kind, Noah's name. When Noah was born, Noah, it seemed, maybe it's him. And his name essentially means rest. Noah was the Sabbath rest, they thought. But it was not Noah. It was not Seth. It was not Cain. It would be thousands and thousands of years later. A woman named Mary would give birth to Christ the Lord, and he would be the Redeemer. Now, Mary, we know, had the angel Gabriel appear to her. And it's it's just, it, it's one of those awful things of secular times with people hostile to the faith where people say, oh, you know, this means God assaulted Mary, raped Mary, what have you. Uh, if you've never read the Magnificat. It is in Luke chapter 1, verses 46 to 55. And Mary said, after Gabriel appeared to her, My soul magnifies the Lord, and my spirit rejoices in God my Savior. For he has looked on the humble estate of his servant. For behold, from now on all generations will call me blessed, For he who is mighty has done great things for me, and holy is his name. And his mercy is for those who fear him from generation to generation. He has shown strength with his arm. He has scattered the proud and the thoughts of their hearts. He has brought down the mighty from their thrones and exalted those of humble estate. He has filled the hungry with good things, and the rich he has sent away empty. He has helped to serve in Israel in remembrance of his mercy. As he spoke to our fathers, to Abraham... And to his offspring forever. One of the things scholars of the Greek will tell you is that when Luke writes these passages, it seems very clear that Luke was talking to someone who spoke Hebrew and he was translating their words into Greek, which possibly explains as well the curious phrase in Luke chapter 2, verse 19. Mary treasured all these things, pondering them in her heart. It's as if perhaps Luke interviewed her. In fact, we know that uh, Luke interviewed many people. Paul writes in his letters that Jesus appeared to over 500 people, from his brothers uh, and family to the apostles, to many of his other disciples who walked with him on earth. We think of the disciples as just the 12. There was actually a following, and Jesus appeared to them, after his resurrection. But very, very curiously you can see where where Luke is translating between an Aramaic Hebrew language and Greek, and it appears very much that he was translating I said Hebrew Aramaic actually, that the some of the word choices he uses, for example in the Magnificat and in other passages there at the beginning of Luke, seem very clearly he translated from Aramaic into Greek whoever he was interviewing. So he very possibly did interview Mary which is fascinating to think in the histories of these things. We'll get into that later. But to begin with, we start there in the manger. We start with the angels, the heavenly host, glory to God in the highest and on earth peace among those with whom he is well pleased or with whom he is pleased. I can't tell you what they sounded like. I cannot tell you whether it was a arrangement I cannot tell you whether there are altos, sopranos, tenors, and bass. I cannot tell you what language they used. I cannot tell you if there were instruments. I cannot tell you any of those things. I wish I could. Did it sound like Mozart? Did it sound like the music of the age? Did it sound otherworldly, celestial? Did it sound like jazz? Did it sound like blues? Did it sound like rock? I, I have no idea. What I know was the message, and the message was pure. The message was, on earth, peace among those whom God has pleased. Glory to him for doing this.
1: No crowds were waiting No royal celebration Just a humble father And a blessed young mother And the sound of hope and peace from the cries of a homeless king The angels say Glory in the highest The wise men came Cause they knew you were the one And the shepherds saw Without Our Savior.
0: Welcome back. It's Eric Erickson here on WSB. That is North Point, uh, Mandy Stanley's church. They have wonderful, wonderful music there. And even the last song was Todd Fields from North Point uh, with What Child Is This? This is Jesus, Our Savior. It's available on iTunes. It really is just a beautiful, beautiful song. Uh, I'm always delighted by what they do and try to incorporate some of their music. They just do such a good job. Um, I want to spend when we come back a little bit of time explaining to you why December 21st or 25th, (laughs) why December 25th is the day we celebrate Christmas. Because if you're like me, you grew up learning that it was the early church co-opting Roman holidays that as, as The Empire, as the Roman Empire Christianized, Constantine decided to take the Roman pagan holidays and impose on them Christian holidays. That's the way I learned it as a kid, and it does not appear to be true. I mean, I've gone to seminary, I've taken early church history classes, I've studied up on the writings of the Biblical Archaeological Society, uh, you, you name it, and it just doesn't appear to be the case, and I want to explain that to you when we come back. Now, why do we do this program? You know, I... I'm very, very fortunate to work here, and I, I dare say you're fortunate to have WSB here in Atlanta. That's not to, to tout us or to toot our own horn, but it is to say this, that when I first started at WSB in 2011, I had never worked anywhere where a work day was Good Friday. Everywhere I'd worked, even in my secular law firm, Good Friday was a holiday, and I was kind of stunned to work in a place where it wasn't. And I decided if I was going to work on Good Friday, I was going to do a show about Good Friday. Really, the, the most important historic moment in history, even secular historians agree, uh, the death of Christ is the most important day in human history. Even atheist scholars from, from major institutions around the world agree with that. They don't, they don't dispute he lived and that his death was, was groundbreaking, game-changing for society. But, you know, there were some internally who had qualms, that too much Jesus talk, we're a news talk station, we're not a religious broadcaster, a little much, a little much and, and some wanted me to back down. And, and people who listened to the show overwhelmed the station demanding copies of, of the show. And thereafter, everybody was like, you know what, you got to do this every year now. And it, honestly, it's a burden because that show comes from a, a level of emotion one of the reasons I feel compelled to do it is is I'm very very blessed to have so many days a year where I can talk about whatever I want, and I almost feel like it's a tithe. I got to do that show, and now so many people have asked that I do this show as well. And this one's actually a great joy because I can go into the history of the season, why it actually is uh, scripture, and and make it a little bit theology, a bit of theology. Read it. Um, and just savor the moment, which I want to do with you this evening. When we come back, why Christmas is on December 25th. It is not because of Roman holidays. Welcome back. It is Eric Erickson here on WSB. This is our annual Christmas program. That's need to breathe. Go tell it on the mountain. Great version of that song. Although my oldest had to sing. Go tell it on the mountain in her Christmas program this year. She's like, dad, you got to stop playing that song. So uh, I'm playing it for you because I got to play it for somebody. It's a great version. Uh, If you're just tuning in, uh, these are two hours. WSB sets aside every year to mark Christmas. And we will play this program throughout uh, the weekend and into Christmas. If you would like a copy of the program, you can text the word show to 444-999 and get the podcast version. Just please note that uh, some of the songs have to be stripped out because of copyright rules for streaming and whatnot. Uh, But you'll at least get uh, what I'm talking about. And right now what I want to talk about is why December 25th? Why do we celebrate it? Many of us learned that Christians set the date of Christmas to co-opt pagan holidays. You know, you got Roman the Saturnalia festival of Rome, and Saul Invictus, the feast of the unconquered sun, which actually fell on December twenty fifth. And a lot of scholars reason, you know, Christians could claim Christ was the unconquered sun and draw people into the religion. But the theory didn't actually start developing until the 12th century, and it didn't take off until the 18th century, and with German scholars really in the 19th century. You know, German theologians, honestly, with the exception of Bonhoeffer and a few others, are essentially atheists. If you hear of a German theologian in the early 1900s and the late 1800s, the odds are they were an atheist. (laughs) I mean, really, it, it was amazing. In, in seminary, to read some of these guys, you're like, well, you, you're not a believer. Um, in any event, they're the ones who really offered up the idea that Christians were just co-opting Roman holidays. But I don't think that's true, and there's a lot of evidence that it's not true. Uh, and the reason is because the early church didn't actually celebrate Jesus' birth. They were interested in his death and resurrection. And when the church did start celebrating Jesus' birth, it had its own reasoning at the time. In fact, there's a lot more evidence that the Emperor Aurelian, who terribly persecuted Christians, that he actually came up with Sol Invictus, the Feast of the Unconquered Son, and put it on December 25th as a way to undermine the growing Christian religion. Uh, the Christians were gaining strength in Rome. They were, More and more people were converting. It was a religion that had converts from the emperor's own council all the way down to the poorest of the poor and the slaves. I mean, people were converting, and the emperor had to do something, so he came up with the Feast of the Unconquered Son. I mean, there's a lot of evidence Christians were celebrating Jesus' birth before anyone ever heard of Saul Invictus. But to understand how we got here, you've got to understand that that the early church was focused on his death and resurrection. The most important point in human history, according to even secular historians, is the death of a man named Jesus in Nazareth of Nazareth, who was killed in Jerusalem. Uh, and around 200 A.D., according to Andrew McGowan of the Biblical Archaeological Society, around 8200, Tertullian of Carthage, one of the most famous early theologians of the church, calculated that 14th of Nisan, that is the day in the the Jewish calendar when Jesus died, he calculated that the 14th of Nisan in the year Jesus died would have been March 25th on the Roman calendar in in our present time, doing the calculations for present day because there have been changes to the calendar of the centuries and millennia, but it would have been in present day, March 25th. So Christians and Jews at the time believed something we don't believe anymore. Christians and Jews believed as a matter of fact that a prophet died on the same date of his conception. So in other words, if Jesus died on March 25th, he would have been conceived on March 25th as well. So you go nine months out, and you land on December 25th as the date of his birth. Now, something else you need to know is that the um, the Eastern Church and the Western Church were divided by language, among other things. In fact, some of the major debates we have even today, like the difference between a republic and a democracy, are actually debates that come from the divide of the Roman Empire between the Greek Eastern half and the Roman Western half. Uh, the Romans and the Greeks both had rule by the people as an idea. The Romans, though, called it a republic. The Greeks called it a democracy. There were differences along the way, but that's really where the big divide comes in. And there were those differences in theology in the early church and differences in language used. Well, in the eastern half of the church, they were very interested in John the Baptist. And when did the angel Gabriel appear to Zacharias, John the Baptist's father? He was in the priestly division of Abijah, we know from the Bible, and knowing the division of priests in the temple in Jerusalem when it fell to the Romans in AD 70, and assuming there had been an unbroken chain of of the Jewish priests going back Early church historians in the East concluded Zacharias would have been in the temple in October. And the Bible tells us, after Zacharias left the temple, his wife conceived John. And Luke 1, 25-26 says that six months later, Mary conceived Jesus. So that would put Mary conceiving Jesus at the end of March. Now, the early church in the West had already said, well, hey, uh, we think that Jesus died on March 25th, so he would have been conceived on March 25th. The eastern half of the church said, well, we think Mary conceived in the end of March. Hey, you guys must be right. So the eastern and the western churches, for different reasons, came up with December 25th as the date of birth because they all were settled on March 25th as the date of conception. The earliest known records of setting Jesus's birthday come in 200 AD, a thousand years before there was even a suggestion Christians had set his birthday to correspond to Roman holidays. By 8,300, Christians throughout the world were celebrating Christmas on December 25th because it fell nine months after the date had been set for his crucifixion. And within 100 years, it had become a formal church celebration. Now, here's the important part here. Most scholars actually don't buy the idea that Zacharias was in the temple in October, the year Gabriel appeared to him. And a lot of modern scholarship suggests Jesus was probably born in the spring, not the winter. And one can probably conclude the early church got it wrong. I mean, they just might have gotten it wrong. But this is the important part here. They may have gotten it wrong, but at the time they thought they were right. And they set the date for reasons entirely unrelated to pagan holidays, entirely unrelated to Roman holidays. The most significant point of all is not when Jesus Christ's birthday actually is, but that Christ himself exists. There are a whole lot of atheists who want to write Jesus's existence entirely out of history. And to do so requires an extraordinary number of other people to be written out of history as well. But for me, I think about the only thing that's really fraudulent about the Christmas season are the words to Silent Night, um... You got angels singing, you got a newborn baby crying. There was nothing silent on Christmas. Uh, you know, I've got a, a a dear friend of mine who is a seminary professor who points out that away in the manger is is a bit of a heresy. Um, away in the manger, it, it, no no sound did he make, the little Lord Jesus asleep in the crib or whatever with the, the cattle lowing and the animal noises. Uh, he was a baby. Now, there is, Jesus was fully human. He was fully God. He was fully human. It hurts my head to think about that, Uh, but he was, may have had one physical body, but he had two natures, a divine nature and a human nature. And to be fully human, he had to be a full baby. I had to be a real baby and real babies cry. They get woken up by the animal's brain and mooing and whatnot. He would have cried. So don't, don't think that uh, little Lord Jesus was a was a perfect, perfect baby who never made a sound. If he had not made a sound, there would have been something terribly wrong with him. Uh, likewise, he, he would have gotten sick. I mean, he, he couldn't have gotten sick to the point of death. Uh, the, the divinity would have stopped that in him. But otherwise, he had to live his life completely as you and me, which means he had to be able to get sick. He had to be hungry. He had to cry. Um, all of those things. He just didn't sin, which you and I have a hard time fathoming. Now... I want to spend a little bit of time walking through the scriptural issues. Um, you know, F. F. Bruce is one of those scholars I had to spend a lot of time reading in seminary. And in studying ancient texts, F.F. Uh, F. Bruce has noted that there are only around nine or ten manuscripts from Caesar's Gallic Wars. One of the most famous treatises written in the ancient times was Julius Caesar's Chronicles of the Gallic Wars, It was composed between 58 and 50 BC, but the oldest manuscripts we have that exist are from 900 years later. The history of Thucydides is known to us from eight manuscripts. The earliest belongs to around AD 900, and a few papyrus scraps belonging about the time of the early church. And the same is true of the history of Herodotus. It was written around 488 BC. Yet not a single classical scholar would listen to an argument that Herodotus and Thucydides' histories were bad or in doubt because the works that we have of them are over 1,300 years later than the originals. So Herodotus and Thucydides, we know the history of the Peloponnesian War, for example, I think everybody reads it in college. The earliest manuscript we have of um, the Peloponnesian Wars from Th- uh, Thucydides is 1,300 years closer to us in history than when he would have actually written it. And yet no one disputes it's real. And you know what? The New Testament and the Old Testament, we actually have more recent texts that suggest that there is a great deal about the Bible that is real and, and close to us in history, and close to Jesus in history. For example, there are 5,700 New Testament Greek manuscripts that are known to exist, some of which were written Within 100 years of Jesus' resurrection, there are over 20,000 uh, handwritten manuscripts of the New Testament from the first centuries of Christianity written in Coptic and Greek and Latin and Syriac and other languages. I mean, we've got more of the New Testament preserved from within 150 years of Jesus dying than of pretty much any other ancient text. Uh, there's no reason to cast out on the veracity of Scripture, and I want to spend some time on that.
2: Let all mortal flesh keep silence and with fear and trembling stand. Ponder nothing earthly-minded, for with blessings in his hand. Christ our God to earth, descended our full homage to man King of kings yet born of Mary as of old on earth he stood Lord of lords in inhuman In the body and the blood, he will give to all the faithful his own self for heavenly food. Rank on rank, the host of heaven. Spreads its vanguard on the way As the light of light descendeth From the realms of endless day That the powers of hell may vanish As the darkness clears away
0: Welcome back. It's Eric Erickson here in the WSB Christmas program. I want to play a song in its entirety for you, which is why when we came back, it's just my voice and not really a lot of music, uh, segueing back. We have a dear friend in our family, uh, named Casey. When I married into Christie's family, she was a part of that family. And she is, when we go on vacation to the beach, we take her with us. She's just, she's, she's family. Uh, and she has a favorite Christmas song that I had never heard until i married into Christie's family. And it, the story here is that, uh, Gala Peavy was a child star and she cut a song in 1953 to help raise money for the Oklahoma city zoo. And it just the song took off and it just it was very very famous in the 50s and 60s and it's rarely played anymore these days and I just I love this song and I've now found Christmas ornaments where if you push the little button it's a hippopotamus and it plays the it plays the song and I want to play it in its entirety for you guys here at Christmas and when we come back uh the actual story of Jesus but right now I want a hippopotamus for Christmas <laughs> Super. Welcome. I'm Eric Erickson. You're listening to WSB, and this is our annual Christmas program.
3: Tell me the story of Jesus.
0: Write on my
3: heart every word. And tell me the story most precious, the sweetest that ever was heard. Tell how the angels and chorus sang as they welcomed his birth. Glory to God in the highest, peace and good tidings on earth. Tell of the cross where they nailed Writhing in anguish and pain Tell love the grave where they laid him And tell how he liveth again Oh love in this story so tender Clearer than ever I see Stay let me weep while you whisper, love paid the ransom for me, love paid the ransom for me.
0: Welcome. That is Kim Walker-Smith, Tell Me the Story of Jesus. I want to do that, and I want to do it in a, a different way than you've probably heard it in some cases. Uh, the first hour I read from Luke chapter two, the account of Jesus's birth. But I want to tell you about one of my favorite Christians, a man named Polycarp. Eighty and six years I have served him and he has done me no wrong, is one of the famous quotes from Polycarp. He was the Bishop of Smyrna in Turkey in AD 156, before he climbed onto a pyre when Roman authorities intended to burn him to death. That's what he said. They wanted him to recant his faith in Jesus. And he says, 80 in six years I've served him, and he's done me no wrong. Now, eyewitnesses say that the local authorities actually really respected Polycarp, but uh, this was in a period of Christian per- persecution, and the local authorities were told they had to round him up. And when the local Roman soldiers came to Polycarp's home to get him, He invited them in, he cooked for them, he fed them a meal, he prayed over them, and then he went with them to his death. The Romans, in fact, they didn't tie Polycarp to a post. He told them he would not run, they could trust him, they knew they could. So he climbed on top of the pyre himself without being tied to the post, and they lit the pyre to burn him to death. These are all documented facts. He was a real person. We have letters from Polycarp. Uh, Polycarp lived. Some of the witnesses say the fire would not actually touch Polycarp, and the Romans ultimately stabbed him through the heart. But he died a martyr's death because he refused to recant uh, his belief in Christ. You know, it's it's actually interesting. In a day and age where Christian bakers are told to bake a cake or else, uh, the the Romans told Polycarp, just pour out a little perfume on the floor on an altar, For the emperor, that's all he had to do was just pour out a little perfume. Everybody knew it was meaningless. Everyone knew the emperor wasn't really God. And all he would do was do that. And he said, no, it would undermine people's trust in him. Now, authorities also carted off Polycarp's friend, Ignatius. In fact, Polycarp uh, touched the chains of Ignatius as he was carried off to Rome. Polycarp was the bishop of Smyrna. Ignatius was the bishop of Antioch. He was fed to wild beasts in the Circus Maximus on July 6, the 108. We know he lived. We have his writings. He wrote some very famous letters. He refused to renounce Christ. Now, here's the thing. Histories of the time, their personal writings, the writings of other people, they tell us that Polycarp and Ignatius were students of a man named John. And Polycarp, Ignatius, and others of that time period in the early church identify this John as the John who wrote the book of John, and Revelation and John 1-3 through 3 in the Bible, that John, the Apostle John, they vouch for him as the author of the gospel. In fact, John is actually known by history to have installed Polycarp as the bishop of Smyrna, and the Apostle Peter, yes, that Peter, crucified upside-down Peter, put Ignatius in charge of Antioch. These are all real people. We have their writings. In 1899, the Romans drowned an acquaintance of Polycarp and Ignatius, a man named Clement. They tied him to an anchor and threw him into the sea because he wouldn't renounce Jesus. Paul actually mentions Clement in his letter to the Philippians, and history shows that Clement interacted with Peter, Paul, and John and worked with Peter and Paul while they were in Rome. Clement and Ignatius and Polycarp were only a generation removed from the direct eyewitnesses of Jesus. They were students of the apostles. They vouched for the veracity of the apostolic letters from the New Testament. In fact, from the writings of Clement, Ignatius, Polycarp, and a few others, but particularly those three, we can reproduce almost the entirety of the New Testament. We're talking about men who were writing in the time period of about 100 AD, and we can reproduce the writings of Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, and Paul, and some and, and James, I think we can, and, and Jude as well, so, which se- tells us that the gospel letters most likely were actually written before the fall of Jerusalem in AD 70 uh, that they were most likely written very close to the time that Jesus died. And they all died for refusing to reject Jesus as Christ. Now, there are a lot of skeptics out there who will tell you Jesus didn't exist— uh, no historian actually believes them. Historians believe by historic standards the man known as Jesus' of Nazareth existed. Now, you can debate his divinity, but the man actually existed. If he didn't exist, then neither did Socrates. We have no writings from Socrates. We only know about Socrates' existence from the writings of other people, four or five other people, but no one actually doubts Socrates existed. We actually have more eyewitness accounts of Jesus' living than we do of Socrates, now, some say because Jesus made claims of divinity, there's got to be extraordinary evidence. Well, maybe as to his divinity, but not as to the historicity of Jesus actually living. We've got to wipe a lot of people out of history to wipe Jesus out of history. The Apostle John was Jesus' best friend. We know this from Scripture, but we also know this because Polycarp, Ignatius, and Clement, they all knew John. They heard his stories. Uh, Irenaeus, one of the famous, famous preachers, Irenaeus of Leon, was a student of Polycarp's, and he documents the stories Polycarp told. Early church histories also document these stories. We know they studied under John. We know John recounted stories of being with Jesus. We know he told them stories that weren't even in Scripture. And they all confirmed that John, Peter, Paul all existed, and they were all eyewitnesses to Jesus' resurrection. In fact, Paul even tells us Jesus appeared to more than 500 people after the resurrection. Now, according to John, Jesus' own brothers, perhaps like some people hearing this right now, rejected Jesus' claims of divinity. At Jesus' death, John had to care for Jesus' mom because none of Jesus' brothers or sisters would show up with Mary for the crucifixion. John, Luke, Paul, others tell us Jesus's brothers then became leaders in the early Christian church. In fact, the history of the era tells us that James and Jude, two of Jesus's brothers, or first cousins if you're Catholic or Orthodox, um, they wrote New Testament letters named after them, James and Jude. Those were Jesus's brothers. Those books of the Bible were from Jesus's brothers. Both of them were executed for proclaiming Jesus as the risen Lord. In fact, the Romans wound up executing Jesus every member of the bloodline of Jesus's family. The leaders of Jerusalem respected James, Jesus's brother. The oral and written histories of the early Christian church recount that they actually went to James and they asked James to publicly push back against the claims of Jesus's divinity because they knew James did not believe Jesus was divine. But James does something extraordinary. Not only does he admit he was wrong, But he says, Jesus is Yahweh. Yes, Jesus is Yahweh. Jesus is the God of the Old Testament. That's what James tells them, and they become enraged. We know this from the historic accounts of the era. I'm not making this up. They carried James. They were so enraged. They carried him to the top of the temple wall. James crying out that Jesus is Yahweh. Jesus is Lord. Jesus is the Christ. And they throw him off the temple wall. And he lands now, some histories say he died, uh, most suggest that he was still alive, but dying, battered, bruised, broken, proclaiming still that Jesus is Lord, and they stoned him to death. Why we know from the eyewitnesses that James and Jude, Simon and joseph Jesus' other brothers, that they rejected him in life and told they told him to get out of town. In John 7, you can look it up for yourself, that Jesus, uh, they tell him, you know, if you think you're such shot stuff, go to Jerusalem, show everybody. The implication there was don't get yourself killed, buddy, but we're tired of you here. And he does. They don't show up at his execution. They want nothing to do with him. And yet they go to their grave dying, proclaiming him, Lord, you know, my sisters would never think to call me Yahweh. They know me well enough. And yet Jesus's brothers are willing to die to call him that. Now, he could have been a con man, Jesus could have, and he could have surrounded himself with other con men like Paul and James and Peter, but his own family willing to die for him? And, you know, James and Peter and Jude and and John and Paul, they could have surrounded themselves with other con men. But it's extraordinary that this group of men who you might think were con men were all willing to die, in some cases, gruesome deaths to keep the con going. I mean, we say that we believe by faith, There is a lot of evidence for our faith. There is a lot of evidence. We know the historic truth of these people living. We have the writings. We have the writings of others who record what these people said. We have the writings of those who who saw. I mean, only Jesus is remembered and worshiped as the Christ. There were literally dozens and dozens of people who claimed to be the Messiah in Jerusalem at the time. And none of them are worshiped. Only Jesus is worshiped. Many of the people say, "Well, you know the virgin birth, the other people Alexander Hercules. Many of those actually are stories that originated after jesus um, story of Jesus's virgin birth caught on why, why, why did Jesus' brothers go to their deaths proclaiming him Lord? why did all of his his nieces and nephews? They all went to their death proclaiming him Lord. Why did Polycarp and Ignatius and Clement and all these others die proclaiming him Lord? Refuse to recant? Why? Maybe because it's true. Maybe, just maybe, it's true. Have you ever considered that? And if I'm right and it is true, well, then you can take to your knees and cry out to Jesus and ask him to prove it. Cry out to Jesus. Be still. And listen, and see what his answer is. Just see. Maybe, just maybe, you'll find out it's true. Poets, they are a Georgia group. Uh, Wonderful, wonderful Christmas music from them. If you want, you can get it on iTunes. I really have enjoyed listening to their music and interacting with some of them on Twitter over the years. I want to pause here for just a moment. I know this program is going to be aired multiple times in the run-up to Christmas. Uh, And while we're there and we're headed into Christmas, I want to say the same thing I said over Thanksgiving. Remember the people who are struggling this Christmas season. Um, you you know, I'm I'm struggling a little bit this Christmas season. I am. Um, for the last eight years, I have been on TV regularly and had TV contracts. Uh, In addition to radio, in addition to income from a website. And, you know, this is the first year I don't have any, anything other than this. This is my sole income now. I don't make any money off the resurgent. Uh, we struggle mightily there. Uh, to to I, I, I pay an employee and just making ends meet and, and payroll for him stresses me out. Uh, my income is down about 70% from two years ago. And it's okay. I, I wouldn't do things differently. Uh, a lot of it are the consequences of political positions I took. And I'm okay with that because I think I made the right decision and I will gladly pay the price. It's nothing like, I mean, talking about Ignatius, Polycarp, and people like that who paid the price for proclaiming Christ, nothing like that. I'm I'm okay. Um, but it's certainly a, a real stress this holiday season for my family and me making ends meet and in funding the resurgent uh funding the resurgent is a never-ending burden and i depend on the generosity of others because i i can't with, with Christie's cancer and medical bills and in all the other bills we've got I, I can't fund it um we depend on the generosity of others for that um yeah by the way if you want to support us uh, you can text the word support to three four five three four five um but I, I i'm not saying that to beg you for money i'm, I'm just telling you I, I know of what i speak I, I know when I speak of the stresses of this holiday season, there are a lot of people stressed. And so I would ask you to be mindful of that, be mindful of the people who are stressed out this holiday season, the people who are worried because they're struggling to make ends meet. They want to keep everybody happy. They've got loved ones who have passed away this season. This is their first Christmas without them. They're struggling. They're arguing over family, where to go, who to visit, uh, how to divide up time. I have been there. I know these things. Some of you may not. Many of you probably do. I'm just telling you to be mindful of others. And if you have friends and you can, invite them to spend Christmas with you. That is the gift you can be giving companionship for a lot of people right now. When we come back, I want to walk you through the authenticity of the virgin birth. Welcome, it's Eric Erickson, and this is a WSB Christmas, and it wouldn't be a WSB Christmas program without a little third day. Ah, I hope you guys are ready for Christmas. Uh, You know, I, I started the very beginning of this program with um with arthur fiedler's uh, carol of the bells and i gotta tell you it's been one of the great pleasures of doing this radio program is meeting uh, a number of the guys and becoming friends with the guys from third day just wonderful people um they have retired uh mac is still out there now uh making music and it's just uh, i christmas in our house involves their christmas offerings album it's a from 2006 but my kids love What Child Is This? The, the third day version of it. Um, I want to spend the last few minutes I have with you on history. We can spend our time talking miracles. We can spend our time talking faith. But what about the history? I, I love history. And I mentioned some of this to you before uh, earlier in the show. And by the way, if you want to copy of the show, you can't get all the music because of uh, streaming rights and stuff. But text the word show to 444 999. But the history of Thucydides, pretty much, I, I had to read it, the history of Peloponnesian War and all that. Um, Thucydides wrote it uh, sometime around 460 to 400 B.C., but the earliest manuscript we have of its existence is from 1,300 years later. And no one would dispute that it was real. Or, or look at uh, Homer's Iliad. People passed it down over centuries by oration. Until it was finally written down, and until the 19th century, most people presumed it a myth. And then archaeologists found Troy. The rage of Achilles was probably true. In centuries before the printing press, or even before monks and script, people preserved their histories through accurate recitation over generations. And now apply that to scripture. Just take the Old Testament. It's perhaps the most accurately reproduced ancient text in the entire world scribes took great care because they were writing God's Word. We know the accuracy of the text. It's beyond reproach. I mean, with the notations from the Hebrew um, script writers and copiers, they knew what the first word should be, the last word should be, and what the beginning words of each chapter should be and what the middle word should be. They had precision down because they truly believed they were copying the Holy Word of God. And when we discover the Dead Sea Scrolls, after World War II, or around World War II, it confirmed it. I mean, we know that the, the, the Old Testament scripture that we have is accurate to at least 3,000 years ago. Think about that. Now, regarding the New Testament, we possess enough of the writings of the early church leaders who wrote within 100 years of Christ. Just the people I've been talking to you about, Ignatius, Polycarp, Clement, Irenaeus, Tertullian. Um, we have enough of their writings. We can reproduce the entire New Testament, just based on the writings of people who live within about 150, 200 years of the writers within a hundred years of, of the resurrection, which people pin between 33, 30 and 35, 80, somewhere in there, we can reproduce all of the gospels, all of Paul's letters and parts of, of John one and revelation from just the people, the Christians who are writing within a hundred years of Christ's resurrection. That's incredible. It really is incredible. In fact, there are over 20,000 handwritten manuscripts of the New Testament from the first few centuries of Christianity written in Coptic, Greek, Latin, Syriac, other languages. There are 5,700 New Testament Greek manuscripts that we know exist, or we have them, and they were written within 100 years of Jesus' resurrection. Now, we don't know if any of these manuscripts we have are the original New Testament texts actually written by Luke and Paul and John and Mark and, and Matthew and the others. But we got copies of them that are so close in time to the originals. In fact, we now know from so many archaeological discoveries in just the past 50 years that all these people who believe that that Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John were written uh, late, like you've got this camp that says the Gospels are newer that they were somehow all written after the fall of the temple. We now know because we have enough texts that were in circulation around that time period. They had to have been written before. They had to have been. I mean, we've got copies that are very close in time to when the originals were written. And what about the errors in them? Because a lot of people, oh, there were errors. There there were occasional errors, believe it or not. There were errors, unlike the Old Testament where there was accuracy and precision in how the scribes copied it. There wasn't with the New Testament. But all of the errors... They're grammatical and punctuation. There are not errors of substance. Where textual scholars disagree is on the meaning of words. They don't disagree on the word usage themselves. I mean, don't take my word for it. Bart Ehrman is a scholar biblical skeptics rely on. He grew up a fundamentalist Baptist. He now considers himself, in his own words, an agnostic atheist. He studied under Bruce Metzger, who, like F.F. Bruce, who I mentioned, is one of the notable scholars when it comes to biblical texts. Bart Ehrman, again, an agnostic atheist, says that though he's got textual criticisms of scripture, his criticisms don't actually stand at odds with anything Professor Metzger has said on the essential Christian beliefs. Ehrman, this is Bart Ehrman, says that the essential Christian beliefs are not affected by textual variants of the manuscript tradition to the New Testament. When an agnostic atheist like someone like Bart Ehrman agrees with someone like Bruce Metzger and says the essential Christian beliefs are not affected by textual variance, then you should probably pay attention because he's not a friend of the Christian faith, really. One of the essential Christian beliefs is the virgin birth of Christ. It is a foundational belief of the Christian faith. It is as foundational as as the resurrection. It is. Um, The early Christian writers took it by faith that Christ was born of a virgin Mary. Um, And they take this from Isaiah that a virgin will give birth. Now the, the Jews actually didn't take it to mean that they took it to mean a young woman and they believe that uh, Isaiah was referring to a woman in the next chapter over who gave birth. But Christians took it to mean the virgin birth. They used this to show that Jesus was legit. And I think that you as a Christian have to understand that this is a fundamental, fundamental issue for the Christian faith. And I I do not think that we should be dismissive of these fundamental beliefs and I am deeply I, I I'm I'm hostile towards the people who say you can believe in Jesus and reject these things I don't think you can I, I don't believe you can say Jesus is real and then say but his resurrection isn't physical or his birth was not by a virgin there's a wonderful passage of scripture. It is God's covenant with Abraham. And he puts Abraham to sleep in Genesis. You can find this around Genesis 15. And he tells Abraham that his descendants would be as numerous as the stars. And Abraham, he falls asleep. Abraham, God commanded him to to gather animals and, and split them in half. In the ancient days before of literacy the way the king would enter covenants with the servants was these animals would be split in half. There would be a path of blood and the servant would walk that path of blood. And the symbol would be, I, the king, am going to do these things for you. In exchange, you're going to do things for me. And if you fail to live up to your end of the bargain, you're going to wind up like the animals. Abraham knew that. And he was willing to enter in this covenant with God. He was willing to divide up the animals and walk the path of blood between them. And before he could do that, God put him to sleep. And he had a vision in his dream of the split animals and the path of blood and a smoking fire pot between them and the voice of God speaking to him. And Abraham knew that's God walking the path. God was telling Abraham, I'm going to enter a covenant with you. And if you, Abraham, you human being, if you screw up, I'm going to die for you. I'm going to take your part in this. Why? Because We can't do it. We can't do it. And so over thousands of years came Jesus, born of a virgin, God incarnate. He came to die so that we might live. You see, God told Abraham he was going to die. And then Moses and, and the Israelites released from Egypt, Moses scattered blood on the people and the people promised to keep God's covenant and said they would die if they broke the covenant. So the people said they were going to die. Well, God said he was going to die. So either we've all got to be wiped out or something else has to happen. And what God said is, you know what? I'm going to come to you. I'll be fully human. I'll be fully God. And that was Jesus, the second person of the Trinity. I, I, the, the Trinity, it makes my head hurt to think about, but I believe it's true. That, again, is an essential part of Christianity. That's why so many Christians say Mormons, Jehovah's Witnesses, others you can't be Christian because they don't believe in the Trinity. This was settled at the Council of Nicaea in the 300s AD. Uh, the Trinity is an essential part of, of Orthodox Christianity. People are willing to die for that point, by the way. You should know that people are willing to die for the idea of the virgin birth. People are willing to die for the idea of the physical resurrection. People are willing to die for the Trinity. And God himself was willing to die for us. And so a final thought here that I want you to meditate on over this Christmas season. God told Abraham that God would die if Abraham screwed up. God's got this. God will carry the burden. God's got this. And Jesus died on the cross. And all you have to do is believe in Jesus. That's all you have to do is put your faith in him, the real Jesus, the Jesus of the Bible, the Jesus who was born of a virgin, who died, who physically rose again from the dead, who is God, who in the beginning was the word, the word was with God and the word was God, that Jesus, the real Jesus, the second part of the Trinity, just put your faith in him. God's got this. Jesus has this. And then remember on the cross, Jesus said, father, forgive them. If Jesus can forgive, you can forgive this holiday season. You must forgive Otherwise, you're saying that the slight against you is worse than what happened to Christ on the cross. He could forgive. You can forgive. We can all forgive, and we can all put our faith in Jesus. He will carry the burden for you. He will. Just trust in him. It's Eric Erickson here on WSB. Thank you for listening to this Christmas program. I cannot tell you how blessed I am to have such a wonderful, supportive audience who prays for me and my family, who listens regularly. And the station, just they've been so supportive and so encouraging to do these programs. Uh, you know, I started seminary a couple, several years ago now because people kept asking me to fill in for preachers on the weekend. Um, and I did, and then all the invitations went away and I just, I've realized over time, this is, this is kind of my ministry and I am willing to dedicate some time to do these programs on Good Friday and Christmases as a tithe to share the gospel and the reasons why the evidence for faith to tell the stories that so often don't get told on a commercial radio station. And it's been a real blessing. Now I got to tell you, I end this program the same way every year and have done so for at least six years now. Uh, I play the same song. It is one of my favorite Christmas songs. It is not not a religious song. It is a secular song. It is a famous song. From my family to yours, I wish you a Merry Christmas. And from all of us here at WSB, have a Merry Christmas.
1: A merry little Christmas Let your heart be light Next year all our troubles Will be out of sight Have yourself The Yuletide game.